Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago, Illinois, this is Bug House! times. We live in times where any difference of opinion can go from, I disagree with you, no, I disagree with you, to go fuck yourself in an eye with a knife, you motherfucker, in this much time. It could be about Star Wars, it could be about Trump, it could be about the taste of chocolate, it doesn't matter. Somewhere along the line, our culture got so polarized that we've lost our ability to actually have a constructive disagreement about anything. But the easy thing is to assume it's all our fault, that it's always, that we're the worst it's ever been. And the reality is that's not true. It has been this bad in this country at other times. In 1911, it was so bad. The acrimony between factions was so contested and so contentious that in Washington Square Park here in Chicago, Illinois, radicals, free thinkers, revolutionaries would gather together and get on soapboxes and they would argue constructively the issues of the day. It was dubbed Bug House Square because those people were fucking crazy and Bug House is pejorative for a mental hospital, but that was what Bug House Square was. And it was a big deal in Chicago and it was a big deal in the world. Around the 50s, things were still pretty contentious. We entered another trough of contention and anger and Studs Terkel realized we needed the Bug House Square again, so he brought back in, in conjunction with the Newberry Library and several other groups Bug House Square in the park. They still, to this day, do debates in Bug House Square. But David Kimmel, who's not here because it's his wedding anniversary, um, yes, um, is the co-editor of Literate Ape. I'm Don Hall, I'm the other co-editor. And we decided that how do you, in 2018, create that Bug House Square without getting arrested because you're standing in a public park on a fucking box? You do a show in a bar. And so that's what we did, and thus, Bug House. What you're gonna see tonight is what I call the art of the dialectic. We have six writers every month. The six writers do not get to choose the topic they will be debating. They do not get to choose the side of the topic they will be debating. They're assigned it. Whether they believe that side or not is not the issue. That's what dialectic is. If you can argue a point effectively and persuasively, whether you believe it or not, you understand the argument on the other side. At least that is what I learned in debate in college. So we thought this was a great idea for a show. And in fact, it has been a very good. This is our 12th one. We've been doing this for a year. But as I told Joe, we're not going to rest on our laurels because anybody can do a year. Come back in three and a half years. That's when we'll have our big gala celebration and everybody gets a growler of beer. So, but that's what we're going to see. You're going to see six, six performers, writers, whatever you want to call them. They're going to make a persuasive case about three very specific topics. And they don't have any interest at all 
in anything we're doing is walk right the fuck through, ignore the man on the fucking microphone, and just keep walking, motherfucker. Okay. That's, yeah, they thought I was, yeah. Oh, jeez. All right. Welcome to Chicago and shows. Um, the three topics that we're going to have tonight. We have Chicago gang violence. Is it a neighborhood problem or is it a city problem? That's a serious topic. And we have two very funny men who will do that very serious topic. We have veganism. Is it a lifestyle or a cult? <laughs> and we have smartphones, amazing technology, or bringer of our doom. Those are our three topics. Now, most shows, a lot of shows in Chicago will have the audience vote on the winner, like on these kinds of competitive things. But that, and that's democracy, right? But we don't live in a, a democracy. We don't, we know that. So some shows, like The Moth, will have like teams of judges, right? And that's representative democracy. But we don't live in a fucking representative democracy. We say we do, but we don't. We live in an oligarchy. And so, 1% makes all the decisions for all of us. And in this case, Jim Speth is our 1%. <laughs> Randomly chosen, Jim is the one judge. He does not have to explain why he made his decision. He doesn't have to give you the benefit of the doubt. It is your job as fine Americans to simply accept what he says and shut up. That's it. That's America, my friends. Well, our, our gang violence isn't setting records this summer. There's, there's plenty of gang violence in Chicago. And internationally, we are judged by our gang violence. And the interesting thing is, all of the killings that we've had this last summer by gangs happened in about three neighborhoods. Now the question at hand, is this those three neighborhoods problem? Is this something they should deal with? Or is this sort of like that it takes a village kind of thing where this is a problem that all of us in the city of Chicago should have to grapple with and find solutions for? The two men that will be arguing these points, ladies and gentlemen, big hand for Joe James, Chris Churchill, give him a hand. Does somebody have a quarter? A quarter. <laughs> Anybody have a quarter? Or a coin of any kind? I have a debit card. Debit card doesn't count. It doesn't flip well. All right, thank you. All right, you will get it back. All right. By the way, they are both teachers. They are both playwrights. They are both comedians. Because Joe's old, he gets to call it in the air. All right. Heads. It is, in fact, tails. So, Chris Churchill, would you like to go first or second? I will go second. He is going to go second. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe James. Give him a hand. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be 
poor Fred Rogers. Looks like ruffians have taken over his neighborhood. He looks bitter. Bitter and dead. Hello, neighbors. I live on the south side. I know. Ooh, scary. If you were to believe the news, you'd think I lived in an underground bunker and never risked sticking my head out of my glorified hole. Truth is, my neighborhood is safe. It's safe because of people like me. Gangs are like cockroaches. You get them, and sure, you can call Orkin and spend a lot of money, but that's their job. They don't want to kill all the cockroaches, just enough to make you think they did something. They leave a few to fester so they have return business. You want to squish all the bugs? You have to strap on your rubbers and stomp on them yourself. How do you keep your neighborhood safe? Follow the golden rule. If you see something, say something. I have it tattooed on my inner thighs. <laughs> if you see something, say something. Did the old stick and poke myself. Gangbangers try to mark their territory like the feral creatures that they are. Just like scaring off a wild beast, you have to get all alpha male and let them know who's boss. A few weeks ago, I saw some gang graffiti, and you better believe I said something. I called my neighbor Phil. I said to him, Phil, guess what I saw? <laughs> Gangbangers done tagged the underpass. Has some flying yellow bears, fluffy clouds, shooting stars. Takes up the whole length of the tunnel wall. Well, this got Phil riled up. He hates gangbangers more than I do. We went by the Ace Hardware, bought several gallons of eggshell white, and gave that wall a new coat of paint. I have yet to see any bangers hanging around there. You're welcome. <laughs> You've seen those signs in people's windows that say, we call police? I made my own sign. I call me. <laughs> I am the police. Not officially, but I am. I'm the self-appointed cop on my block. I have several guns and so does Phil. We have more guns than appendages to hold them. If I see you while I lean out my second story apartment window and you look suspicious, hoodie, walking, <laughs> wearing Nikes, well, I'm going to come down and have a speak to your face with my gun at the ready. Illinois doesn't have a stand your gun law, stand your ground law yet, but it's my God-given right to defend myself, and no court in the land will convict you for doing that. You aim your phone or a bag of Skittles at me, your cold, dead lips will be kissing the pavement. Adios, my brother. Over half the states in our country have a stand your ground law. Snowflakes complain that it has led to an increase in homicides. Duh. That means it's working. <laughs> Think you're moving into my neighborhood, banger? Think again. If we peg you for gang activity, you are not going to know what hit you. First, we're going to put barricades on your block. Then early on a Saturday morning when you are trying to sleep from your nocturnal criminal shenanigans, We'll set up a grill, a bouncy house, and blast music from the new 93.9 Light FM. The best variety from the 80s, 90s, and now for Chicago. We will rickroll your ass out of your crib and onto the curb. 
You can call the real police if you want. They're just going to tell you to be a good neighbor and enjoy the party. Pack your bags and grab a hot dog on your way out. Don't try anything funny. Phil will be inside an inflatable castle with his AR-15 aimed right at your head. Stomach. Head. Stomach. <laughs> you might be saying, Joe, this sounds dangerous. Why not let the city handle it? Well, the problem there is that the city has its collective head shoved up its ass all the way up to the curve of its big shoulders. Ram Emanuel closed so many public schools that he may as well have set up a gang recruitment center at City Hall. You can leave it to the cops, but they don't do anything until something has happened. They end up shooting up the block more than the bangers. What I'm talking about are preemptive strikes. After school activities do help kids off the get kids off the street, and that's where the city has truly failed. Rams readers? Ha! Kids don't want to read a book. Hell, I don't know anyone who does. Knowledge is power? Well, knowledge this. <laughs> my gun can cut a bad guy at the knees in two seconds, whereas my copy of John Grisham's latest is only going to bounce off him like a DVD because I don't read books. I wait for the movie. It's my neighborhood. It's where I live. I want to keep my friends safe. I want to keep my family safe and will if they come back. You got bugs in your house? Buy a gas mask and bug bomb them yourself. Got trash in your street gutter? Pick it up. Take it out on Thursday. Dogs pooping in your yard? Buy a pooper scooper and a gun. They shouldn't be pooping in your yard. <laughs> you want to live in a safe place? Move to Bridgeport, where I live. All are welcome. Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Unless you're a Latin king, black disciple, or an abortion-loving social democrat, then stay the hell out. <laughs> yeah! Joe James, were you in favor of uh, hood, the, the neighborhood control? Yes. Okay, that's what I that, just want to make sure. Just want to make sure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, for the flip side of the argument, Chris Churchill, give him a hand. Yeah. All right, so uh, first thing I should mention is uh, I'm not from Chicago. Uh, but for 20 years, I've been a tour guide here. So I know my Chicago information. I also know that Chicagoans, uh, what they look like from the outside. So hopefully that will all come through as I discuss this. Now, like I said, I'm not from Chicago. I'm from a much smaller city uh, called Kansas City, and not even the big part of Kansas City. As some of you may know, there is a Kansas City, Missouri, and a Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas City, Missouri is the big city. It's got about half a million people, okay? Kansas City, Kansas has about 150,000. But if you look at the crime stats, if you look at the crime stats of uh, biggest cities in America, uh, top 100 biggest cities in America, uh, now I know 2016, I know Chicago gets picked on a lot, but Kansas City, Kansas actually had a higher murder rate than Chicago. Chicago was not, as Mr. Trump would have you believe, the murder capital of America per capita. St. Louis was by two and a half times the rate of Chicago. 
So let me just uh, say that Chicago does not have a uh, monopoly on, on bad murder rates and gangs and things like that. Now, uh, when I was being raised in Kansas City, Kansas, I was not in the greatest neighborhood. Uh, I was raised in uh, kind of a shitty little neighborhood, a bunch of townhomes connected, all breaking down. Uh, my mom had been divorced from my, uh, my dad for a couple of years. Well, actually, that was where we moved when she got divorced, when they got divorced. Um, and we spent seven years in this neighborhood called Redwood Gardens, and it was a mess, right? It was, we were poor, nobody's parents were ever home. You know why? Because everybody was broke, and everybody was working two jobs. There were no parents at home. I remember at seven years old, at seven years old, I would walk across the street, uh, across a field, up the hill, through some barbed wire, run across a highway, run across some barbed wire, run across this cow field, more barbed wire, and then over to my friend Samantha's house. Uh, my mom told me not to do that, but she wasn't there. So I did it all the time. Now my friends there, most of my friends in this little subdivision we lived in, now it wasn't like I said, a, 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 it wasn't like the ghetto or anything like that, but it wasn't a good neighborhood. It wasn't nice. Nobody had any money there and nobody had any parental supervision. My neighborhood was either what we would refer to as rednecks or the majority of my neighborhood were poor young black kids. Most of my uh, friends growing up were poor young black kids. Uh, we all kind of went through the breakdancing thing together. I was, I had a terrible breakdancing name. But um, anyway, um, we, uh, we would play a lot and we had cable TV to tell us what to do, to, to, to instruct us. And I remember as a kid with all this going on, uh, anybody remember a movie called Fist that came out in the 70s? Yeah, yeah. Starring so, a young Sylvester Stallone, right out of Rocky, but playing basically Jimmy Hoffa. And it was the beginning of the, uh, the, like the union movements and stuff like that, or it was, you know, whatever, whatever Jimmy Hoffa was involved in. Anyway, the whole thing was uh, some big lesson about, you know, what happened to, to Johnny Kovac was the character. Where's Johnny Kovac? Anyway, uh, so we all saw the same movie uh, since Cable was our parents. And we all thought it would be fun to start a gang uh, as kids. That's what we thought was fun, okay? We went, just like in the movie, took little baseball bats, tapped them on the, on the ground, tap, 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 and just said fist, 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 because we saw it in a movie, okay? Now, you know, one time, as I was taking one of those long walks at the age of seven into some neighborhood I shouldn't have been in, really, really far away, uh, I literally was shot at by one of the rednecks in the trucks uh, in Kansas City, Kansas. It's walking down a street, and a truck full of, of, of what I would call rednecks went by, and one of them pulled out their pellet gun, sure, but shot at me, and then just laughed and screamed down the street. Well, that was what was going on in Kansas City, Kansas, okay? It's not Chicago. So I moved to Chicago 21 years ago. And when I first got here, I thought people were, you know, fucking around or complaining too much about, oh, Chicago's the most segregated city in America. Oh, you're, you've never been anywhere. You don't know. No, it turns out it's actually not great here in terms of neighborhood segregation. And I was like, I wonder why that is. I wonder why people don't move out of their neighborhoods. Why don't people... Why don't people mix up in the city? 
Why is that? And then my wife got a job working in the schools, and she would come home and tell me, do you know that the school I was at, the kids had to bring their own toilet paper? Did you know that? Like, what? Yeah, they don't trust them with the toilet paper in the school. They have to bring their own toilet paper. No, just, just in the bad neighborhoods. What do you mean in the, like the other neighborhoods, they all have laptops. They all, everybody gets a laptop, even though they've got two of them at home. Everybody gets a free one. The bad neighborhoods, you bring your own toilet paper, okay? Now, gone through all that, what am I talking about? The, um, the way that we determine how the schools are funded? Property taxes. Does that make any fucking sense? The schools are funded by property taxes? That means if you live in a bad neighborhood, you'll get a bad school? Oh, that'll give you one hell of a good chance to get out of that neighborhood, won't it? Great education. I got the toilet paper school, so I'm going to Yale. No, you don't hear that very often, right? Now, think of all that. That's Chicago today. Let's think about Chicago throughout history. I told you I am a tour guide. This city has always been about inequity from the very beginning when all the, the traders and, and trappers and, and, and uh, capitalists from the east started moving west to, to settle and do the land speculation in this new area where they were, they were going to be eventually building a, a, a way to connect the waterways, the Lake Michigan to the Mississippi River. They were eventually going to do that. And when that happened, this was going to be a big important city. America was going to start moving all of its stuff through Chicago rather than around the Gulf of Mexico. So let's get these fucking Indians out of here. Kick these out of here, these people out of here. They don't, uh, they don't actually own any land. So send them, send them west. All right, so now the city's founded, 1837. We're moving, we're moving, we're building the city. Well, we got people coming in here to redevelop the land, to, to raise up the level of the streets. We got people like, like uh, George Pullman who comes in to, to raise the level of the streets and then crank up the houses. Well, he already had the money when he got here. He used the money he made cranking up the houses and, and, and working with the city to eventually build the town of Pullman, to create the Pullman train cars where he basically hired former slaves because they were good at serving people. In the 1860s, as the Irish started to move here, they became the last people, the bottom people on the totem pole, as we say. They were forced into their little neighborhoods because nobody wanted to deal with them. They showed up and they did all the worst work, the, the dirtiest work, the hardest work in town. People would spit at them. Tell them, go stay in your neighborhood. And then the Great Chicago Fire happened. And it happened because that Irish neighborhood was neglected. The whole city was made out of wood at that time, of course. Streets, sidewalks, everything, it's all made out of wood. But when that neighborhood had a fire, the whole city caught fire. Why is that? Because they had no warning bell, that had been neglected. They had no little wire service to warn the adjacent neighborhoods that there were problems, that they might need some help, that had been neglected. Probably no trash pickup either. But the fact is, the whole city, of course, we know what happened in the Great Chicago Fire. Afterwards, they're looking for a scapegoat, literally, uh, almost literally. Wait, I got a cub story confused with the thing. No scapegoat. It was a cow, right? Um, they blamed Mrs. O'Leary, and they blamed Mrs. O'Leary. You know why they blamed her? Because she was Irish, and people would be fine with that. They made up a whole story about this Irish lady causing the fire. So then, the Irish are the mess. 
Guess what happened to Mrs. O'Leary's son? You know, her son, his name was Jim O'Leary. He actually went into racketeering, mobstering. He was before Capone. Jim O'Leary ended up creating the first casino boat. So yay, mobs, create the casino boat. We can keep going. Every, every generation, there's a new group of immigrants to come in. The Italians come in. They're considered the lowest of the low when they come in. So they got to take care of themselves. They start the whole gang violence thing with Capone and, and Johnny Torrio and, and all those guys, you know. And then you got the Polish and the Jewish and the Irish mobs and all these people who are sort of like segregated into their neighborhoods. They got to take care of themselves because they're not real, you know, Chicagoans. They're not real white people in Chicago, you know. They got to take care of themselves. Then the Great Migration starts in the 19 teens. And between 1914 and 1970, Chicago's population went from 3% African American to 33% African American during that time period. And uh, guess what? They were almost all during that time relegated to one little strip between what's now McCormick Place and Washington Park along Martin Luther King Boulevard, which it wasn't called back then, it was called South Parkway, uh, and some other offshoots there. And they had a great, vibrant culture there too, but you can only take so much. You've heard of this thing called redlining, right? In uh, real estate, they, wouldn't, they weren't allowed to move out of their neighborhoods because you couldn't go to Joe Jane's neighborhood and, uh, if you were a black person. They'd kick you right out of there. You couldn't buy a place there. Couldn't go anyplace else. You had to stay where they wanted you to be. And, of course, they could ignore you and they could tell you which beaches you could, you could go to and which beaches you couldn't go to. So they, like the mobsters before them, began to take care of themselves. But there's an even worse problem of uh, the legacy of slavery and racism before that and not tr being trained to do this and that. It's poverty on top of anger, on top of isolation. And sure, there, if you look at the map of where the, the murders are in this town, south side, west side, majority, you know. 70%, by the way, of all murders in Chicago are black people. More than 70%, actually are black people being murdered. And it's because of the way they've been separated out and isolated. And even now in 2018, the legacy of that still remains. I had a job driving the story bus, reading stories to kids in different neighborhoods. And I had the privilege of going through some of the scariest neighborhoods you've ever been to to read stories to these little kids. You guys have been to these neighborhoods, or at least you've tried not to get off the L there, or you've tried not to pull over your car there. It's terrifying, some of these neighborhoods. If I lived there, I'd be terrified all the time. And uh, let's just say, with nothing else to do, with no recourse, and with the privileged people in power, this is what happens. And if those people that are forced into that life are not our problem, then what kind of people are we? I guess that's all I had to say. There's Churchill. Gentlemen, come on up. So we have heard Joe Jane's backhanded defense of Neighborhood Watch. I stand by every word. He stands by every word. 
And uh, Chris Church's very sincere defense of the city looking at it. Jim, who wins this debate in your opinion? As much as it pains me to say so, I believe that Joe wins that defense. All right. Joe James wins the debate. Give him a hand. are a little bit like Apple users. In fact, it's just that they want you to know that they have an Apple product more than they really care that they have an Apple product. It's its, its own version of consumer virtue signaling. However, it is a real thing. Joe, James actually, uh, he's a vegetarian. I know this because I've known Joe for 30 years. He flirted with veganism once, but that was because he was dating a vegan. Which begs the question, is veganism a lifestyle or a cult? Ladies and gentlemen, Diane Castile, Erica Ann Forrest, give them a hand. Okay. All right, y'all, we're gonna talk about veganism for a minute. And don't freak out, my name isn't frickin' Jasmine Starchild. I'm not here to shove some conspiracies down your throat. I come in peace. <laughs> I'm just here to tell you some facts. You deserve to know these facts. Conspiracy theory nutjobs, they've ruined any possible chance of any sort of sensible discussion. I get it. No one likes being told what they can or cannot do. Especially don't like being told what they can and cannot put in their mouths. And you can argue all you want about climate change and whether we're the ones causing the rise in climate temperature, but the fact of the matter is, it's happening. And meat, it's not green. Nearly 50%, half, of man-made pollution comes from the meat industry. One pound of hamburger meat equals the same as using your car for three weeks. Extinction is impacting 86% of all mammals, 88% of amphibians, and 86% of all birds. It's estimated that we will have fishless oceans by 2048. Man, what could we do to stop this? Oh, I don't know. Maybe stop murdering and eating them. That might be a good start. <laughs> now, Miss Hippie Starchild and her stats, they are inevitably going to be skewed. So here's a quote from the intro of the American Society of Clinical Nutrition. The US food production system uses about 50% of the total US land area, 80% of the fresh water, and 17% of the fossil energy used in the country. The meat-based food system requires more energy, land, and water resources than that of a vegetarian diet. Okay, now let's talk about poop. It's a natural thing, I get it. But consider this, an estimated 89,000 pounds of shit is squeezed out in the US alone per second just while I've been talking about this. <laughs> that, my friends, is not so natural. And the cherry on top of your pile of shit cake, there are zero laws or guidelines as to how farmers should dispose of said shit. Think about that. Where could that shit be? <laughs> and you do know we don't need meat. We've evolved into such a species that not only craves meat, but they like their little piggies killed and cooked at a specific temperature and never hesitate to send that little piggy back to the kitchen if it's not cooked to our liking. 
It all comes down to whether or not you want to eat meat. If you're cool with slaughtering living beings like Saw fucking 17, then by all means, we don't need to eat tortured flesh. But damn, does it taste good. And anyone who calls out how horrible this animal abuse behavior is, they're automatically labeled a pussy. But like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I mean, like, you are what you eat, right ladies? <laughs> And did you know that filming a factory farm, it's a crime, like it's illegal. Like it's all good, nothing to see here, but like really don't show or tell anyone what you're seeing here. <laughs> Go ahead, solve your problems by murder, just don't post it on the gram and we're all Gucci here. <laughs> there is zero logic going on here. Order a duck or a lamb, you ask what kind of sauce does it come with? but kick a golden retriever in the face and you're suddenly un-American. Straight to hell to you. And fun fact, pigs are smarter than your dog. Like way smarter. Pigs have learned video games, y'all. That's wild. You know what? Teach that golden retriever of yours Fortnite and then reward him with a big old pot of hot steaming water and throw him in. Dinner's served. <laughs> And I guarantee you this shit is going down history books. Right after the chapters on slavery, sex trafficking. Kids, did you know back in my day we used to murder innocent lives? We would trap them in cages that would get smaller and smaller. And then we would trick them into straight up killing them. And then serve them on a silver platter because we're celebrating Uncle John passing his GED. <laughs> so like, what's this to be? It's lifestyle versus cult. Let's refer to history here. What cults come to your mind? Jonestown, maybe? Drink a little too much of the juice? What about the KKK? What about Hitler? Seems like cults have a bit of a pattern of murdering innocent lives for their own swick, sick and twisted instant gratification. So now I want to not do that, and I'm a cult. Well then, I'll, by all means, sign me up, dude. Sounds like a bit more of a lifestyle choice to me. Hi, I'm Erica. I like to be healthy and not kill cute, fuzzy living things. <laughs> I'm not telling you to go out and buy fucking dream catchers and sing Kumbaya, but just think about that for a second. Think about your golden retriever. On top of saving cute little fluffy friends, you're going to be energized as hell. Shed those unwanted pounds. Vegans are less likely to develop heart disease, cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, cardiovascular disease, strokes, Alzheimer's, I can keep going if you want. And that's from the Academy of Nutrition. That is science, yo. <laughs> also, I don't know why everyone insists on bitching. Vegan food is delicious. And there's such a demand now that, guess what? Supply shooting up too. More and more delicious products that taste like the real deal. And oh, bonus, don't murder animals. That many people can't be wrong hopping on the vegan train, express train to a healthier and happier life. There are over 20,000 species of edible plants in the world. Fucking use them. <laughs> and you don't have to sacrifice taste. Vegan chefs brought home the trophy at the last two annual grilled cheese invitationals. Who does not like grilled cheese? Non-dairy cheese, people. And a vegan ba baker won the renowned Cupcake Wars. Again, twice. So not only is vegan food delicious, but when you break it down, 
meat's gross. And don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong, I love a good juicy frickin' double cheeseburger with my chocolate shake. But when you consider blood and guts and other just unmentionables, remember that pile of shit I was talking about earlier? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's gross. So it's also the cause of nearly three million cases of food poisoning every year. Yeah, that baby cow tasted fucking good going down, but how about coming back up? <laughs> or back out. If you tell me, if you tell me, eh, eh, it's worth it, then by all means, dude, just fucking do you. I'm gonna go ahead and opt out of that one, and oh yeah, again, not murder animals. Also, being vegan is sexy. That's a fact. You're gonna have more energy to do the things you love. Not to mention better, not to mention better skin, better digestion. I mean, have you ever had the meat sweats? I have. It's a real thing, and it's not a great thing. Instant gratification, sure. But those consequences, they come up hot, and they come up quick. Vegans are the only... <laughs> Vegans are the only group of people who average a normal and healthy BMI. Fact. Fact. Each day, a person who eats a vegan diet saves 1,100 gallons of water, 45 pounds of grain, 30 square feet of forested land, 20 pounds of CO2 equivalent, and an animal's life. Let's think back to the golden retriever, y'all. Also, so many celebs are doing it. Miley Cyrus is doing it. That's a sexy vegan right there. I don't know about you, but that's enough reason for me right there. <laughs> <laughs> and despite all of these facts, you know, like science, <laughs> how the hell are you going to meet people? What is going to be your icebreaker? It's either become vegan, or you take a CrossFit. And I don't know about you, but CrossFit sounds fucking horrible. <laughs> we all know veganism is a cult. Anyone who's been unfortunate enough to have been exposed to a vegan knows this to be true. I mean, the word itself is a dead giveaway. Veganism. Veg, from the Latin to suck the joy out of life, and agonism, from late old English, to annoy the shit out of people. I also have a personal connection that validates my views. I am married to a vegan. <laughs> He's sitting right over there. Because he never lets me on his sight. <laughs> yes, I spent, I've been living in a cult by proxy. And I have the emotional scars, the emaciated frame, <laughs> and the obsessive gastronomical fantasies to prove it. So tonight, I'm not just arguing that veganism is a cult. I'm breaking my silence. <laughs> and I thank you in advance for bearing witness as I come out as someone who's been forced to engage in vegan shimoni for 30 long years. <laughs> Let's start by looking at what sociologists, criminologists, and top chef all agree are characteristics of a food-based cult. Such as meditation, chanting, speaking. 
facilitating work routines are used in excess and serve to suppress doubts about the group's practices. My debilitating work routine includes cooking, cleaning, chauffeuring for kids around, paying the bills, cutting the grass, doing the laundry, grocery shopping, managing social plans, walking the dog, and doing minor household repairs. All of this because I sometimes eat cheese. <laughs> Two, call members dictate, sometimes in great detail, how others should think, feel, and act. In addition to having to eat plants, and only plants for three meals a day. I'm only allowed to watch vegan cooking shows. I have to dress in cotton instead of cozy wool in Chicago's brutal winters. <laughs> Wigging polyester instead of featherweight summer, featherweight silk in its blistering summers. Even when we play our sex games. <laughs> Yeah, that's because you've never had chocolate cake with real 
chocolate frosting. You're a vegan, vegan face. <laughs> Ice cream made from ash bananas, and I'm guessing the other ingredient is dirt. <laughs> but raise your hand if your first reaction to this picture wasn't, wow, did somebody actually shit in a bowl? <laughs> this monstrosity is scrambled tofu. Kind of like green eggs and ham, except no eggs and no ham, just the green. <laughs> I don't know about you, but the idea of waking up to this for breakfast makes me want to pull the covers over my head, turn my face to the wall, and spend the day in bed. <laughs> Behold, no harm, Parmesan. One question. What is the fucking point? You might as well whip up cheeseless pizza or crackers and tofu, which they do, by the way. Oh. Chickpea mousse, my friends, Chick or so they say. To me, this also could be shit. Shit with maybe a dab of menstrual flow. Judging time. The oligarch must weigh in. <laughs> All right, Jim Smith, you heard both sides. The oligarch is extremely undecided. But you but we don't leave till you decide. <laughs> I have a vegan daughter. I hate her sometimes. <laughs> I think we'll call it vegan for all of us, because the oligarch has said vegan. Yes. However, I believe the, the, the vegan hater has made her point more passionately. I give it to uh, Diane. Dan. All right, give her a hand, Diane Castillo. Smartphones came around about 10 years ago and they have infected everything we do. They have made the internet more viable. In fact, I would argue that the reason for the existence of this show has a lot to do with the smartphone. So the question is, is the smartphone amazing technology or the bringer of our doom? Ladies and gentlemen, I will be debating Natasha Sutsoris. Give her a hand. Thought experiment. You're walking down the street and you suddenly happen upon a young man being br beaten brutally. Do you A, intervene, B, avoid the situation, C, pull out your smartphone 
and get a video of it. Let's take a toe dip into the world of evolutionary biology. Certainly no expert in the field. I've spent a few hours reading online articles and watching videos on my iPhone 8 Plus and thus can be considered more of an expert than most of you. So why not take my word for it? Yeah. Evolutionary biology is the gradual transformation of winning hardware over failing hardware. That's evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein's modern analogy, and given we're talking smartphones, it makes sense and it fits. A simple example of evolutionary biology is the peppered moth. Originally, the vast majority of peppered moths had a light mottled coloring which was good camouflage against predators. Before the Industrial Revolution, a uniformly dark variant of the peppered moth made up only 2% of the species. After the Industrial Revolution, however, 95% of peppered moths showed this dark coloration. The best explanation, the scientific explanation as to why this change in the species occurred is that the light moths lost their advantage of camouflage as light surfaces were darkened by pollution. And so light moths were eaten more frequently by birds. That's evolutionary biology. The winning moths had dark coloring. The losers were the traditional peppered ones. Evolution chose. I mean, you know, the moth example is not the greatest, it's not the sexiest, it's not like why do giraffes have long necks instead of short necks, or why birds are basically tiny fucking dinosaurs, but let's, you, know, you get the point, right? It's evolution. Humans, however, have through technology bypassed the hardware part of evolution. A thousand years ago, a man who had asthma would just die. A woman with failing eyesight would just fall off a cliff. <laughs> Modern technology has created fixes for these conditions, and thus we survive without the evolutionary change in the hardware of humanity. A thousand years ago, there weren't morbidly obese people everywhere you could see because technology hadn't improved farming and chemically making food last longer. And after all, Fritos and soda were technological advancements far beyond the possibilities of those in 1018 AD. But we still have huge, fat Iowan tourists who get around Navy Pier in Disneyland because they have modern scooters and medical technology has advanced to keep their tiny hearts pumping blood through their massive clogged arteries. And so evolution has been sidelined. Where humans evolve now is in the software stage, our mental processes. Our creativity, our social game evolve as our bodies do not. And as the evolution of our software goes, the smartphone is a virus that is killing us off like malware, thought, experiment. You have more computing power in your back pocket, a mere few inches from your sphincter, that was utilized to put men on the moon in 1969. Do you use this extraordinary technology to A, increase your understanding of the world by accessing ideas and news from all over the planet? <laughs> B, learn new skills via YouTube and things like masterclass videos? Or C, 
Feed your natural narcissism by taking pictures of your face and meals to get the dopamine hit that comes with mass approval by people you barely know. Here's some straight up truth brahm therapy. Jean M. Twenge, PhD. PhD means we respect, right? Yeah? Okay. A professor of psychology at San Diego State University has a new paper published in Clinical Psychological Science. You don't read it, so it must be important. Arguing that increased smartphone use with teens is leading to higher rates of depression and suicide. Quote, in just five years between 2010 and 2015, she says, the number of US teens who felt useless and joyless, classic symptoms of depression, surged 33% in large national surveys. Teens Suicide attempts increased 23%. Even more troubling, the number of 13 to 18 year olds who committed suicide jumped 31%. She says that they found increases in depression and suicide occurred among teens across every background. It didn't matter what the teens had in wealth or if they were from poor families, what their ethnicity was. All told, she said, our analysis found that the generation of teens born after 1995 is much more likely to experience mental health issues than their millennial predecessors. After screwing, scouring several large surveys of teens for clues, says Dr. Twenge. I found that all of the possibilities trace back to a major change in teens' lives, the sudden ascendance of smartphones. We almost forget that 10 years ago, there were no fucking smartphones. They were flip phones. They sucked. And as recently as 2011, only a third of Americans owned one. Now, nearly two-thirds do. That figure, figure reaches 85% when you're only counting young adults. And 46% of Americans told Pew surveyors last year a simple but remarkable thing. They could not live without one. The device went from unknown to indispensable in less than a decade. The handful of spaces where it was once impossible to be connected, like the airplane or the subway or the wilderness, are dwindling. Even hiker, fucking hiker backpacks on Amazon now come fitted with battery power for smartphones. Perhaps the only safe space that still exists is somewhere out there in Oklahoma in a truck stop without fucking Wi-Fi. All screen activities are linked to less happiness, and all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness. Eighth graders who spend 10 or more hours a week on social media are 56% more likely to say they're unhappy and have been bullied. Those who spend an above average amount of time with their friends in person are 20% less likely to say they're unhappy than those who hang out for a below average amount of time with people. Thought experiment. You are forced to choose between your spouse, your health, or your smartphone. According to about seven different polls of Americans ages 18 to 54, you choose your phone. And most of you in this room had to take a pause and think about it. Back to evolutionary biology. 
Aside from our brutal need to create the other in order to make war, our inability to moderate our consumption of available resource and our desperate need for personal affirmation, the specific evolutionary quality of homo sapiens that has allowed the species to survive without fur, big ass teeth, speed, and the fact that unlike most mammals, our offspring is born years before they can function in the world without a constant caretaking, is that we are social creatures. It is our ability to band together and function in tribes and societies, to access hierarchies that enable familiar groups to bond with other familiar groups and foment societies and agree to common values that become laws that has been the core survival technique of the species. The technology that allows us to connect on a global scale, to communicate almost ceaselessly without personal in-person connection should be a huge and wonderful advance. It should be a leap that puts us into the very next stage of our software evolution. It should be, but it isn't. As we continue to rely on smartphones and computing technology to tell us where we are and how to get to the nearest Jiffy Lube, to memorize our essential phone numbers, remember our birth dates of our family and friends, count the number of steps we walk, the less reliant we are on our own Software, the Pixar film WALL-E is the dystopia we are entering, where humanity is just a series of fat, boneless lumps, content to consume the world via a screen and float around on hovering chaise lounges as our hardware atrophies and our software devolves into Play-Doh versions of brains. Thought experiment. Without your phone, seriously, can you right now a, figure out how to get to the nearest hospital. B, tell me your mother's phone number. C, describe the plot of any great American novel with actual character names. D, tell me what you're doing this time exactly next week. If not, your de-evolution is already at hand. When the zombie apocalypse comes and it will come, I've seen it on my phone. <laughs> the only concession is that only the poorest among us and the Amish will survive. <laughs> Thank you. on the planet Earth, Natasha Susaurus, yeah! I love my iPhone. Whenever I want, I can order a tall drink of chocolate penis who is into voracious ass play. <laughs> have to wait until I get home and charge up my pink Dell laptop in order to do so. I can be on the bus ride home. Tall drink of chocolate penis? Check. Voracious ass play? Check. At any given moment, I can look up something without having to go through the anxiety-filled recesses of my, main, of my memory bank. Instant gratification is a peace offering from a shitty childhood, and I happily accept it. 
It's a matter of mental health. I want to know right fucking now who played Gar in the movie Mass. <laughs> Which incidentally, I'll never have to look up because fucking Sam Elliott played Gar and nobody fucking forgets Sam Elliott. <sighs> We all have that one dickhead in our life who remembers all of your awful shit and with the will that is both arbitrary and sinister reminds you of such dignity-filled moments. Well, my brain is that one dickhead. So if I can find a way that helps me dodge that bullet spray, I'm all in. I don't want to flip through the files of when my mom switched from fists to metal spoons in order to remember, didn't Mandy Patinkin and Barbara Streisand have an affair while on the set of Yentl? <laughs> Let me Google that shit on my way to Starbucks. I was taking a shower the other night and using my removable shower head to power wash my bridge when I noticed, <laughs> when I noticed that my mouth was watering. And I was like, is that a thing? <laughs> So with my one free hand, I reached out of my shower, past my Stevie Nicks shower curtain, grabbed my phone off my sink, and looked up, does anal stimulation cause mouth to water? <laughs> Turns out it's just me. But how excited is Tall Drink of voracious ass playing chocolate penis gonna be when he hears this? Oh, and guess what? I can tell him right fucking now. <laughs> My friend Mikey lost his dad last year, and in an effort to help him with the grieving process, he asked me to send him dirty jokes. Happy to. So in line at Trader Joe's, I researched dirty jokes of only the highest brow, like, what do you call a hooker with a runny nose? Full. I mean, I'm sure I'm on, I'm, I'm on some kind of watch list now, but I don't give a fuck because Mikey feels better. Whenever I want, I can silence a friend's incessant text messaging, especially if they have some piece of shit Android that can send only one goddamn word at a time. So I get 900 fucking text messages asking me, do you want to get Moscow meals on Friday night? First of all, I always want to get Moscow mules. And second of all, get an iPhone, you fuck! Or we can't be friends. Over said Moscow mules, you tell me, I have the perfect guy for you. And before that copper mug hits my lips, I can look up this perfect meat dick and decide in an instant if our relationship is effectively over or if I need to stock up on the morning after pill. I decide I don't like you, I can block your dumb ass whenever I want to. And I can also unblock you whenever I want to. It's up to me. I can ride the L while listening to Bach. And then I can straight, straight away listen to Roxette. And then back to Bach. And then to Simon and Garfunkel. And maybe I'm not fucking feeling Simon and Garfunkel, so then I move on to Jacqueline Dupre and get lost in the magnificence of her cello playing, which is a much softer world than riding the L when a homeless dude slaps out Hepsi Poo. <laughs> Just last week, I played Tupac's California Love, followed by Digital Underground's The Humpty Dance in my Pilates class. And afterwards, a student came up to me and said, did you know that Tupac was a member of Digital Underground? And I went, what the fuck now? And I instantly looked it up and then immediately texted my bestie, girl, did you fucking know Tupac was a member of Digital Underground? <laughs> my older brother texts me audio clips of his farts. <laughs> Currently, 
108. <laughs> of his farts in my phone. I had to up my data plan. And I was fucking happy to do it. Because there's nothing more hilarious than standing anywhere with your headphones on and listening to farts. Especially when I can hear him giggling at the end of it. And then I think, oh my god, where did he do this? And then I picture him in his fancy office, closing his door, god I hope, pulling down his fancy fucking suit pants and arranging the, the phone just so, just so and spreading his ass cheeks and just letting her rip. And that is a much better way to spend my brain power and time than listening to the chick in front of me in line telling whomever she's talking to on her kidney-eared phone that she thinks her boyfriend Tommy's allergic to chicken. <laughs> a major stroke in 2016, which unlocked full-blown dementia. She lives in a facility near my farting older brother, and he has the pleasure of taking her out to lunch every weekend. She says the most insane shit, which my brother relays to me in real time. Mom says she saw a black panther outside of her window last night. The activist or the animal? The animal, but good question. Mom says she's Asian. Oh. That's a new one. And that her former boyfriend referred to her as his slow-eyed baby girl. Oh, Jesus. Christ. And that he reminded her of his favorite prostitute back in college. Well, at least he didn't remind her of, she didn't remind him of his least favorite one. I could be walking home from work, order food, and by the time I arrive home, so have my tacos. Some ball bag at a bar tries to stiff my chair and I can pretend to be on my phone, instant shield. Standing in line at Jewel, I can go on Facebook and figure out who my ex-boyfriend's ex-wife is and discover that she does not know the difference between there, there, and there, and I laugh to myself, why did I ever compare myself to her? <laughs> Nothing instills more fear in me than a friend asking, can I look up something on your phone? Fuck no, you can't. Then you'll see who I really am, and that's not gonna fucking happen. If my phone had its own voice and could talk, I'd be in trouble. Like, not like legal trouble, but mm, trouble, for sure. And I'm pretty numb to shame. But if my phone rats me out, that's gonna make things difficult. It's the only thing I can really trust. And in some ways, it's the healthiest relationship I have. It doesn't judge me or shame me. It doesn't caution me. It don't clip my wings. It lets me be me. It knows what I look up, when I look it up, how many times I look it up, which is key. It knows where I go, what I do, when I get there, and whom I do it with. And it doesn't give a fuck. It knows the darkest, darkest recesses of my mind. My phone search history is both a psychologist's sweat dream and worst nightmare. I am beholden to it. Companies pay big money for their employees to have the kind of loyalty I have to my phone. 
I can create my own world thanks to my phone. I can choose who I want in it and who I don't. I can fill it with only things that I love and that make me feel good. In my world, there are plenty of tall drinks of chocolate penis who are into voracious ass play. And I can't get enough of it. taking first because she had to end that thing man. oh that's so funny all right jim i hesitate to ask who wins the round my friend you know i am a avid apple phone hater but as i'm going through my android phone here checking all your facts <laughs> i crashed First of all, if, you've, if you enjoyed the show, tell somebody about it. It really, I mean, it, you've heard it a billion times, that word of mouth bullshit, but it's the truth. Your recommendation to come see something will make more, more people come see it than all of the sort of like vague online, what are you doing? Tell people you enjoyed it, it was cool, you enjoyed it. If you hated it, that's fine, it's okay. You can tell people you hated it. Like, you know, I don't, I, I have the same level of shame as Natasha, I don't give a shit. <laughs> You know, whatever. Um, if, uh, if you like to read, and I assume everybody in this room likes to read, go to literateape.com. We have, it, it, really, it's a cornucopia. It's short fiction. We have a new series that's coming out where, where we've got, like, I think six of our writers have done an exquisite corpse of a fiction piece that kind of goes normal and then gets weird and then comes back. And it's, this is the kind of thing, but we've got short fiction, we've got poetry, we've got political op-ed, we've got bizarre comedy, we've got all kinds of stuff. So absolutely, if you get a chance, go to literateape.com, read the thing, and most importantly, thank you for coming to see a live event on a Monday night in Chicago because it's so fucking easy to sit and watch Netflix. It's so easy to go, you know what? I work all day, I'm just gonna go home and just chill out. But you all chose to come out to a location, enjoy some beer, for which you should definitely tip your waitstaff big time, and saw something live, and that's kinda cool, and I applaud you all for doing so, so thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah.